Hello, everyone, and welcome to this Power at Work blogcast. I'm Seth Harris. I'm a senior fellow at the Byrne Center for Social Change at Northeastern University. Uh, I'm going to be your host for this discussion of the National Freight Rail Labor Dispute. Now, you've seen this uh, labor dispute discussed in the headlines. We're going to go behind the headlines and explore why it is that a Democratic-controlled Congress at the behest of a Democratic president this week imposed an agreement on the freight railroads and the rail unions and essentially prohibited the unions from striking. Uh, I've invited two genuine experts on this topic to join me in this conversation. We have Jonah Furman, who's a reporter for Labor Notes. And as I told him in a phone conversation yesterday, when I have private conversations with some of the top flight labor and economics reporters in this country, they all grudgingly admit that Jonah has absolutely owned this freight rail labor dispute story. That's largely because he's talking to frontline workers. He's communicating with the workers who are members of these unions. He's not just talking to people like our other guests and me or people in government or the leadership of the unions. And speaking of our other guest, it's Sharon Block, a longtime friend of mine, former colleague from the Biden White House and also the Obama Labor Department. Sharon was special counsel to the Senate Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee under Senator Ted Kennedy. And now she's a professor of practice at Harvard Law School and the director of the school's labor and work life program. Jonah, Sharon, thanks so much for joining the broadcast today. Let me uh, provide a little bit of level setting background for folks. And, and if I get it wrong, you guys can clean it up when you jump in. Um, on the one side of this labor dispute, you have 12, uh, you have, uh, 12 unions representing about 102,000 workers in all of the freight railroad crafts. You have more than 30 uh, freight railroads, including all the largest freight rolls. Essentially, you have the entire national freight rail system involved in this labor dispute. And the freight rail system carries almost 30% of the cargo that moves in this country. So it's extremely important to our national economy. In fact, it's a pretty powerful argument that without the freight rail system, the economy would largely or at least partially shut down. Uh, collective bargaining between these two sides started in 2019 after the expiration of the last round of collective bargaining agreements um, there are always a lot of issues in any bargaining round, but but three issues seem to stand out in these negotiations. The first was pay increases and whether or not workers would have to pay more for their health insurance. Second, uh, the railroad's very strict attendance policies that didn't really give workers very much leeway if they had a family or medical uh, emergency or even a family or medical issue. And that that umbrella sort of covers the issue of a lack of paid sick leave in the arrangements that had preceded this one. And then third, although it wasn't on the table in these negotiations, it was a very important background fact, and that was staffing. According to the Surface Transportation Board, which regulates these freight railroads, the railroads have cut their staff by 30% over the course of the last several years. That has put an immense amount of additional pressure on the employees who are remaining at these railroads, and it put even more pressure on them with respect to sick leave and family leave because they had to work more and were less available to attend to those issues. But you can't really even talk about those issues without taking the COVID-19 pandemic into account. These railroad workers 
were and are essential workers. They worked through the pandemic, moving the goods that all of us were ordering off of the internet while we were sitting at home and, and hiding behind our curtains. Um, and they were putting their health and their lives and their families at risk while many of the rest of us were sitting at home on Zoom as we are right now. Um, so the unions and the railroads negotiated. They were not able to reach an agreement on their own. The National Mediation Board, which is both a regulatory agency, but also an agency that involves itself in mediating rail and air disputes, got involved in the negotiations, mediated the negotiations. They were able to get some areas of agreement. They were not able to get a complete agreement between the parties. Um, in June of 2022, the National Mediation Board released the parties for mediation. Now, that's important because it started a clock that would have allowed the parties after 30 days to use what's called self-help, meaning the unions could strike or the railroads could lock out their employees, although that was likely un an unlikely scenario. So they, that's sort of known colloquially as the cooling off period. The NMB and the unions very aggressively encouraged President Biden to appoint a presidential emergency board, which he did in the middle of July of this year. That extended the cooling off period, and it gave the party sort of non-binding arbitration, meaning a panel of three neutral arbitrators wrote a contract for the railroads and the unions. Um, it was advisory only. They issued their report after 30 days. I think it's fairly safe to say that the railroads didn't love the report, but they could live with it. The unions were not happy with the report, in large part because it didn't fully address the paid sick leave issue uh, that was very important to the membership. After the PEB issued its report, the parties returned to the bargaining table and with just a few hours to spare, were able to reach a tentative agreement. Uh, at least the largest unions were able to reach a tentative agreement. Many of the smaller unions had already signed off on a tentative agreement prior to that. Since that time, when they reached the tentative agreement with some starts and stops and ups and downs, uh, eight of the unions out of the 12 and a part of a ninth union have ratified uh, the tentative agreement. Um, the remaining four unions' membership rejected ratification of their agreement, and that's where we stood as of about a week ago. Uh, so, Jonah, let me start with you. Um, what's your sense of why it was that the grassroots frontline members of these four unions rejected the tentative agreement? Yeah, I mean, I think the headlines are right on this, basically, in, in the idea that it's it's like other fights we've seen, it's not about the pay, it's about living with a job like this. It, that The big bucket is time off the job. This has taken the form of paid sick days as like the flagship demand, but really it is, can we work less, which means staff more? Can we have a life outside of work? And this affects different groups of workers differently. The harshest is for the traveling workers whose scheduling has been totally disrupted by precision scheduled railroading, which is the, the regime that the employers have taken on over the past five years or so. That, that is part of that workforce reduction you're talking about. So really it was, you know, the, the baseline issue for workers was this was a good job uh, for my parents' generation. This was a good job 10 years ago. Now I can't live with it. I don't have any time for my family. And 
Um, you know, of course, there's other baseline things. You know, we talk about the 24% wage increase that was involved. That's over a five-year period with inflation being what it is. That is not as impressive as it sounds in a single package. It's not like tomorrow your wages go up 24% and next year you're going to get another raise. Um, and the pandemic, obviously, like we saw in so many other fights in Frito-Lay, in Nabisco, in John Deere, overwork in, in the auto industry at UPS, overwork is a serious issue that got much worse during the pandemic and the stakes got much higher. I think the sick days became the stand-in for a general work-life balance issue and obviously had the extra valence of the pandemic, right? So, um, and just so people understand a little bit more about the sick days, you know, it's not just, I want some more days off. It's that I don't want to be penalized or at risk of being fired over harsh attendance policies. So something people may have remembered is in February, there was a, a more localized dispute um, in BNSF over their high-vis attendance policy, basically meaning much more punitive damages against workers in a point system for missing work or being late for work or missing a shift. So it wasn't just that I want time off the job, but if I need time off the job, I don't want my job to be at risk. I don't want my, you know, I don't want to be fired after 20 years for having getting COVID and having to take time off the job. So that sort of crystallized it, but it was really about what is it like to live outside the job as a real worker in this country? Yeah, I, I had the sense that there was sort of a, a, a brewing anger among these workers that was caused by the combination of what you're describing, the precision scheduling, railroading, which was very much bound up in the reduction in staffing, and also the COVID pandemic, where workers really felt like they put themselves on the line for the companies, for the country, um, and and they they wanted something in return for that. And they were not alone in feeling that way. You know, they're not the only ones who have rejected a contract that was negotiated by their bargaining committee that happened in the John Deere strike uh, involving the UAW. Um, so, so I think a very important points about about sort of what it was that they were most focused on. Sharon, let me let me turn to you. One of the big differences between this negotiation and most labor negotiations was the very, very deep involvement of the Biden administration. Um, you had three cabinet secretaries that were involved in in talking to the parties, talking to shippers talking to other customers, talking to trade associations in Washington. Um, at one point, there was an anecdote told in a story, while the negotiations were going on in the Secretary of Labor's office that you and I know very well from the Francis Perkins building in Washington, um, the president, the Speaker of the House, and the Senate Majority Leader called into the negotiations to urge the parties to settle. Um, and then after the tentative agreement was reached, there was a ceremony, not really a ceremony, but sort of a press statement made by the president of the United States in the Rose Garden, standing with the National Economic Director, with the Secretary of Labor, and with uh, the woman who took my job, uh, uh, Celeste Drake. Um, that kind of thing doesn't happen very often. In fact, I in my three times in the government. I don't remember it ever happening like that, with that kind of involvement. Other secretaries of labor have been involved in other negotiations. You were involved when Secretary Perez was involved in the West Coast negotiations, but it didn't look like this. So why do you think they felt they had to dive in so deeply? And do you think maybe they shouldn't have done it that way? Uh, did that change the dynamic in the negotiations? 
Yeah, no, it's a it's a great question. If I could just go go back to the point you made about the workers being angry about the dynamic coming out of COVID and what they did during COVID. I think the one piece that we didn't talk about are the profits that the rail companies have been making. And I think that also really adds to the anger. This is not an industry. I mean, I'm not an economist, but what I read from Jonah and 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 good reporters on this is this is not an industry that absolutely that can say we can't afford to do the right thing. Um, and so I think that really also contributes to this frustration that the unions had with the position that the companies took at the bargaining yeah. table. But getting back to your question, I mean, we, you know, in the in the Obama administration, we did get very involved in a couple of of labor disputes. So the ports, uh, the West Coast ports, and then the Verizon strike. I think here. Um, why you see an even higher level of involvement is the nature of this sector. I mean, when the president just signed um, the bill that ended this dispute, um, you know, he gave a figure of 765,000 other workers, non-rail workers, who would have um, been out of work in the immediate aftermath of a rail strike of this um, uh, this size. And so with those kinds of potential ripple effects, I think the administration sort of rightly saw that this was this had such potential impact on so many workers um, and so much of the economy that they needed to be um, doing everything that they could to bring this to a resolution. Now, it is antithetical to the idea that collective bargaining is what we call private ordering, that it is the the parties to the agreement, um, figuring it out around a table or on a picket line. But there are so there's so many things about the Railway Labor Act that um, sort of chip away at that idea that it creates just a private ordering system. You know, there are there are subjects that workers are not allowed to strike over in the statute. Um, there is this cooling off period. So I think embedded in the Railway Labor Act because of the nature of this sector and its potential for having such a broad impact is um, this sort of always this looming role of the government in how things come out. Um, and then you layer on top of it, just sort of weaknesses in the Railway Labor Act that we also see in the National Labor Relations Act of like workers, strikers being able to be replaced, um, just hangs over, I think these negotiations that the sad fact is that in this country right now, most workers really don't have a meaningful right to strike. Um, either because they're under the Railway Labor Act, which allows for all of this interference, or under the National Labor Relations Act, because the law allows them to be permanently replaced. So I think, you know, this has is, is been a really difficult um, series of events, but I think sort of stepping back now that it's over, like we really need to think about why workers in this country have such a hard time exercising power. 
um, and what have the consequences overall for our economy and for the quality of life for a lot of working people as a result of that. And particularly exercising power by exercising the right to strike, even if they're legally able to do it, as you said, it's extraordinarily difficult, not just in this context, but in many contexts. We've seen some successful strikes over the course of the last, I'd say, two years. Uh, Deer would be an example of it, and there have been uh, uh, Kellogg's, and there have been some other very successful strikes. But um, it's very difficult for workers, except in very particularized circumstances, to be successful in a strike because that threat of being permanently replaced, which is argue, you know, the, the law suggests that that's somehow different from being fired, which it is not, um, is a really serious threat. You know, workers don't want to abandon their jobs if they don't have to do it. So let me uh, let me bring us up to this week. Uh, on Monday, which was November 28th, uh, President Biden called on Congress to intervene in the dispute. He called on them to do two things. One is to preempt a rail strike. The second was to legislatively impose the tentative agreement that had been agreed to between the parties after the PEB report had been issued. Um, I, Joan, I'm really curious what you think. Do you think the unions and their members were surprised by that announcement from the president that happened on Monday? No. Uh, surprised, no. Uh, dismayed, disappointed, yes. It, Going back to what you were saying, Sharon, about the Railway Labor Act, it's not just that the law sits there and is unfair. It also deeply affects these negotiations. So you look at, you know, I think about how there was internal polling the week before the, the new tentative agreement came out. Internal and polling, meaning the unions were the polling unions, their own yes. members and getting their attitudes towards the contract. Yes. Smart, one of the biggest union involved, polled its members and said, do you want to strike even though Congress could impose a contract on us? And it was at something like 80%. Then you look at the re the rejection vote by the same union about two weeks ago, and it was just over 50%. Now, it wasn't the tentative agreement that moved that 30 points. It was the sense among workers that there's no hope here. Congress is going to shut us down. The president is going to shut us down one way or another. So your question is not, do I like the contract? It's not a real vote on the terms of the agreement. Is this what I want? It's the workers are making strategic decisions about well, do we risk going on strike and getting a little less than the TA imposed on us, or do we go on? It's not a, a standard, so it doesn't really make sense to look at the votes and say, here's what the workers really wanted. Eight of them ratified under extreme duress, I mean, I think is how you have to say it. And so when they saw what Biden did on Monday, workers instantly reached out to me saying, we've been betrayed. This is, you know, it's sort of a mix of deep betrayal, deep frustration. People were sending me things like, RIP Democratic Party, uh, people who vote, you know, rail workers who are good union Democrats sending me things like that. And then on the other hand, they were saying, yeah, we knew this was going to happen all along. It was a bad strategy to wait for Joe Biden to do the right thing. Um, I think there's a big picture question here about what the union strategy was through this negotiations severely constrained by the railway labor act but you know also, what i'm gonna hold you i'm gonna yeah. we're gonna close with okay that we'll come back to that. you have a you have a twitter thread that i want to reference that talked a little bit about that but that's our big close so i don't yeah. want you to okay i won't spoil that it i won't spoil just it. yet so that's but, but it's good it's foreshadowing to keep people interested in the rest of what we have to say um i want to i i, I want to jump on your comment about how it affected 
the union members take on what was possible at the bargaining table and what their reaction would be if Congress imposed an agreement. I think it absolutely affected the way the railroads were negotiating. I, the railroads had very aggressively built a case that you cannot possibly allow a national rail strike. It'll destroy the economy. Inflation will soar. Cats will lie down with dogs. You know, we'll see a mushroom cloud off in the distance. It was, I mean, and they built that case very consistently from very early on, even before the PEB was appointed. They were making that case that you could not, that, that, that Congress and the president could not allow for there to be a strike. If there's not going to be a strike, then the railroads don't have a lot of compelling reason to concede on issues like uh, paid leave, which is really fundamental to their profit maximization strategy, right? If one of the ways they are maximizing profits is by reducing the employee count, if you allow paid sick leave for tens of thousands of workers, you're going to have to get more employees, right, in order to be able to fill in for those workers. So I, I think it, it influenced the the members of the union in their thinking about a strike and what they were willing to agree to and not willing to agree to, but it didn't get them to a majority. So how do you explain that? So take what you just said about how they, you know, the, your, your assessment, and I think it's an accurate assessment, is that the workers really had a sophisticated understanding of the politics here. And yet still, four unions had majorities, in some cases, very small majorities, but in another case, you had a 61-39 vote out of the signalmen. They still voted to reject the contract. What? Why do you think it came out that way? I mean, talking to members, obviously it's not everybody, but there's a huge tens of thousands of rail workers who want to fight and see where it's going to go. I mean, they sort of understand at heart, unionism has to be about rolling the dice, using your leverage where you can, and keeping pushing. On the other hand, you know, the other calculus, the other way to think about it is to say, sure, Congress might impose the TA, but it's because there were so few improvements in, in the Walsh brokered TA compared to the PEB agreement, there wasn't much fear. What are we going to lose? These fake sweeteners that really don't do much for us anyway. So some workers were saying, sure, I'll vote it down. They can impose it. It's basically the same as if we get, you know, if we ratify this tentative agreement anyway. But I think even deeper than that is just a level of, you know, I would talk to workers who are not deep union activists and they just feel like we need to fight. Part of this, I think, is pandemic. Part of it is, I think, you know, a post-Trump politics where people are just feeling like we need to throw something at this. We need to throw ourselves on it. We need to just roll the dice and and try something new because this hasn't been working and there's no there's no credible path. For these members to a better contract you know that the only thing they feel they can do is walk off the job and see what happens so there's a lot of members who are willing to you know uh say screw it i'll, I'll try that because there's no other the union does not have a credible pathway here yeah uh, a a very really important point uh, about how they viewed uh their votes and where they were positioned and, and sort of what the mood is among some of the the members out there sharon um so my view, I think it's an unsurprising view, is that Joe Biden is, in fact, the most pro-labor president uh, in the modern era, at least. Um, I, I'm not, I don't pretend to be objective on that point. Part of my job when I worked in the White House was to try to make him the most pro-labor president uh, in the modern era. Um, and people can judge how that came out in any way they want. And, and let me also say the first person to say that about Joe Biden was not Joe Biden or Seth Harris. It was Rich Trumka. 
uh, he was the one who used that phrase, and then the president uh, sort of uh, accepted it and and started to use it himself. But there are nonetheless, and and Joan is absolutely reflecting this. There are a lot of people who are really having trouble reconciling what happened this week with the most pro labor president in modern American history. The president himself said that he really was hesitant to intervene in the ratification process, the union's process on ratifying the tentative agreement. He he was very hesitant to take away workers' right to strike. How do you explain it? How, how do you explain that, that the most pro-labor president is in a position where he's advocating for a position that the workers that Jonah's talking about are angry with him and the railroads are pretty contented? So I think it's hard to overestimate what a difficult decision this must have been. And I do think the president, I would say finally in the signing, in his remarks in the signing ceremony earlier this morning, turned the focus more to other workers who would have been affected by a strike. So again, that number of 765,000 workers who would have quickly been um, out of work at a time where obviously the economy is in a I don't even know how to describe it. We get great jobs reports, but everybody is terrified of a recession. And, um, but you know, to be honest, to say that you're the most pro labor president in generations is not that high a bar. Um, <laughs> we have we have moved in this country from you know the height of the labor movement in the 1950s to a point where labor and its connection to the political system is, is just really uh, diminished. And so I do agree. I was very proud to work for Joe Biden and I'm proud of the work that you did and, and that our colleagues did in the White House in a way to lift up these issues. But, um, the system is so broken. And in my opinion, until we have a president who can really um, is willing to take on and say bluntly, the system is broken and we need a different system for empowering workers and workers then are sort of galvanized to demand that change. A, a president like Joe Biden is just in a really difficult position because he's he needs to act on what I think are his true values with tools that just don't work. So, you know, I feel for him. I am yeah. sure this yeah. brought him no joy I, I... to do this. Um, I hope he will make good on his promise to continue to push for paid leave for these workers. Like, make people take hard votes over and over and over again, because something has to change the politics. And I think it's, it's um, I don't know, unfair. I mean, Joe Biden asked for this job, but it's unrealistic to think that he alone can, um, can make that kind of fundamental change with the broken tools that he has. Yeah, uh, I, I agree with you that I, I, I was really delighted to not be in that room where yes. he had to make that decision because uh, I, I, I can't imagine what those conversations 
uh, were like. Um, but let me, let, I, I want to ask you a sort of, a, it's a related question uh, and maybe an even harder one um, for some people also who I think feel that they are in a difficult position. And that is, you know, the rest of the labor movement leadership in the United States. Uh, why are we not hearing expressions of anger, expressions of outrage? You know, Liz Schuler on uh, President Schuler on on Twitter today. You know, you don't have the kind of flames coming out of her tweets that you see from, say, a Jonah Furman tweet. Um, you don't see that from Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamsters. You don't see that from others in the national labor leadership. I think you are absolutely hearing it from grassroots leaders in the way that, that Jonah has been describing. Why aren't we hearing that from the national labor leadership after the experiences they they had in the past? So, I mean, we're putting it in this term. <clears throat> if a Republican president had done this, what would they have been saying? think it would be very different. I mean, I think that that again comes back to the fact that they have short-term, very serious needs and problems that this administration is is the their only avenue to addressing. We are in a time of legislative gridlock, except for this particular piece of legislation, but overall, um, working people are really need this administration to step up and to do what they can through executive action to help them over these next couple of years where we're just, you know, in a, in a time of divided government. And so I think, you know, the labor leaders have to think about that relationship with this administration in that context. Um, but I think where your question is sort of leading, and it's easier for me now, you know, sitting within ivory literally ivory ivy covered walls like there is a point at which i think folks have to reassess how are we ever going to get out of this dynamic of trying to solve big problems with inadequate tools and and push for a real rethinking and the political momentum then that needs to be behind that commitment to make it a reality, not a short-term project. And so it, it could mean sacrificing relationships in the short term. But, you know, I think, again, we're seeing in dramatically this week that there really wasn't, you know, that, that there was really no good answer here because we don't, the law doesn't allow for good answers. Yeah. Well, that's that's an important thought uh, that taking a longer range approach um, and, um, um, you know, that there are a bunch of people who feel that they're in a bind uh, right now. L let me let me talk, Jonah, with you about some other people who maybe feel like they're in a bind right now. And that is the unions that were involved in this uh, labor dispute. Uh, you had four where the members voted not to ratify You had eight where the members voted to ratify. What does the developments in Congress and the president signing the bill today mean inside those unions? Um, what what does it mean for the future of those unions? Well, I, I mean, I just want to say, I think part of this is that question of, is Joe Biden the most pro-labor president? And I, I think Sharon is totally right. This is like an extremely low bar. It's like the, the largest guppy on earth or something. It's like hmm. Joe Biden's move, the the, the the decision to impose the contract, I think, should be 
brought out as really a, an anti-labor choice and, and one in which in a country where we don't often have those choices. So you can say you're pro-labor, but we have, like Sharon mentioned, the private ordering. This is where union stuff is supposed to happen in the private sector. It rarely touches the presidency. You can go to rallies, you can go to press conferences, but you're rarely, the chips are rarely down for a president. And when they were here, it was a severe choice to make, especially because, you know, like we mentioned earlier, the economics here are really not a question. These days would have costed the companies you know, of course, they're trying to maximize profits, but it would have costed something like 2% of their annual profits to give these days. And the tentative agreement that it was based on was not, there was no strong basis of why there couldn't be a few days in this. If in September, the TA had said there's three actual paid sick days, seven actual paid sick days, it would have been no different to the Republicans paying attention. Outside of the members, nobody cares about these days and, and the employers just trying to wring every penny out. So easily Monday night's statement could have said, we're imposing the agreement with three paid sick days, with seven paid sick days. It would have looked the same to everyone. Now, maybe he didn't have the votes in the Senate from the GOP to support that, and they really would have forced a national open-ended rail shutdown. That's kind of hard to believe considering it sailed through with you know 80 votes or whatever it was yesterday. So I think that point is connected to what's happening in the unions because you have members looking at it's not just, you You do often have, you know, among the rank and file, oh, you endorsed Joe Biden, I don't like what he's doing, you know, I don't want to be a part of my union anymore. But it's much deeper than that. You bet this, you bet the farm on Joe Biden, and Joe Biden directly, like his name, he signed the thing that says, we don't get what we wanted. So I think that's part of the bigger strategy people are looking at in the unions. And they're saying that if you're not willing to strike, and you're not willing to go outside of the Democratic Party leadership, this is a dead end and we need change. How that is taking place in the unions, in some cases, the most interesting one is actually the, the rail machinists. It's about 5,000 of these freight members. You have a rank and file local lodge leader who is now challenging for the presidency of that union. They have an election next year. The incumbent, Kyle Lose, has announced he is not running for re-election, though he's been in office for only six months. I think it's clear that you can't take this back to the membership for a real vote, credibly. So they've slotted in a new incumbent to take his place, and you have a rank and file leader who is trying to challenge for that. You have, you know, it was very interesting to see the timing of the tentative agreement votes. The votes in the two biggest unions in the BLET got pushed to the day after their national convention, where there would be nominations for new offices. Members saw that. So we have an issue in these unions where it's really hard for a member to run for office. I mean, if you think it's hard to go on strike in this country, it's really hard to win national leadership in one of these unions as a rank and file member. And yet you have in the BMWE, the second, the third largest union, you have a large caucus of rank and file members. You obviously have Railroad Workers United, which is a cross union formation that has exploded in this moment. They've been an activist group in the unions for about 10 or 15 years, but they've just, just gotten a ton of new interest from members. So members are really looking for how do we change the leadership of our unions if their plan is just hope that the Democrats deliver, especially because, again, members are strategists themselves. They see we're not going to have a blue president, a blue Congress, uh, a blue national mediation board for the next contract. I mean, that's very unlikely that in 2028, whenever they finally, you know, they serve notice in 2025, but whenever they finally actually get to the end of the line again, it's very unlikely that we have the same political situation. So if there's no alternative plan from the leadership, members are looking for what can we do? You know, 
some of the the immediate Facebook posts I was seeing yesterday were people saying, "Does anyone have our bylaws? How do we, you know, my target now? Now that the contract's over, now that our senators are no longer the target, my target is the president of my national union, my local lodge. I need to figure out how do we get these general chairmen rotated out." And you know, the fact is, this is the part that almost no one will touch because there's a, a deference to you know the unions and the union leadership. And, and basically the trade-off that they have with the Democratic Party saying, we'll deal only with you, we'll want only what you will give us, which is why you don't see the flames, because their political strategy is basically maintain relationships in case anything happens, which means that what you do is say, uh, you, you know, it was amazing to see the AFL wait until Nancy Pelosi put a vote on sick days to come out publicly for the paid sick days to go to Congress. This was an incredible display of how union politics works. You wait to see what the Democratic Party is willing to give, and then you say, that's what we wanted all along. Thank you. We're, we have a great working relationship. So in the unions, you have members who see this as there's no path here to bread and butter gains for rail, railway labor. So you know where, where it's relevant, where there are elections, where members know how to get on a ballot, they are taking that path. And I think we'll see a lot more of that over. It'll take a long time because these union presidents are in for a long time. Let me just ask quickly, follow up. Are you predicting that we're going to see a bunch of new leaders in the next set of negotiations? I, you know, we'll see if there's, I think we'll definitely see some shuffling of you retire and your secretary treasurer is now officially the president. You're going to go spend more time with your family because you can't take another round of this heat. Uh, in these <laughs> negotiations, there was, there was new presidents in the BMWE and the rail machinists. We'll see if they stick around. A lot of people feel like they can't show their face in a local lodge, and maybe that'll cool down in a couple of years, and they'll feel like they can stay in that place. I think less likely than rank and file leaders winning office is just a reshuffling at the top, because again, it's really hard. Our union democracy laws are are almost as weak as our new organizing laws. Very interesting, Sharon. Let me give you a chance to pick up on what Joan is talking about, and I'll, I'll sort of broaden it out a little bit. What is this episode? You know, you spend a lot of time. I want to preface it by saying this: you have spent a huge amount of time thinking about the intersection of policy and the labor movement, worker power, how workers can build power, what changes we need to make to public policy. So now we've had this really important public policy event that has occurred. What do you think it means for the future of the labor movement, the future of worker power in our country, and, and also the future of the relationship between the labor movement and workers more broadly and the Democratic Party? Yeah, I, I and if think that question's if that question's not big enough, I can broaden it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think it could portend a much rockier relationship between labor and the democratic party i think it um i but i want to be clear like the alternative is not for workers and union members to throw in with the republican party i mean if there is an overriding message that this republican party went on record as being willing to shut down the u.s economy in order to prevent people from getting paid sick leave I mean, that that's a, a remarkable statement. And and I hope that people understand that, that, that there are clearly going to be challenges between 
Labor and the Democratic Party. But this is a Republican Party that will do anything to prevent people from getting paid sick days. If we were like every other country in the world, except, I don't know, maybe one, that one keeps switching, but um, where we had a national right to paid sick days, we wouldn't have, workers wouldn't have to rely on what our old uh, colleague Tom Perez used to call the boss lottery to see if maybe you could, you know, convince your employer to do the right thing um, and provide paid sick days. So I think that is, a, I don't want to lose track of that issue in the midst of sort of the internal labor, which are, are important, but but that is really just a, a, an incredible statement that on something so basic, this Republican party is almost united with what, uh, you know, I can count on one hand, the number of exceptions. So that's a big problem. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, I have been advocating during, while I was out of government and now that I'm back here, that we do need a fundamental rethinking of how workers can build power in our country, in our economy, in our society. And it isn't about tweaking the National Labor Relations Act. Now, our politics then also have to change, but I don't think the politics change unless workers can imagine a system where this doesn't happen, what just happened this week. And so I think it's, it is, my work here is built on the premise that we need to be doing both. We need to be building new policy options and thinking about it, but that the organizing has to come behind it. And, you know, to be honest, up until now, traditional labor movement is not there yet. Um, but I think the more we see episodes like what happened this week, when we see Starbucks refusing to come to the bargaining table where it is absolutely clear that their workers have won the right to sit down at that bargaining table, same thing with Amazon, and the law is so weak <laughs> that they can't even make them sit at the table. Right. And there's They're breaking the law. The, the, I think the NLRB has said, at least with respect to Starbucks, that they are violating the law, and there yeah. just is not a mechanism other than saying, "Go sit at the table." To go get them sit to at go the sit table, at the and table. they go like this, and then they say, "Go sit at the table," and they go like this. These, where we see these moments of energy and um, collective action feeding into a system that, in all these different ways, defeats the outcome. I think, I hope <laughs> that that starts to galvanize people around an understanding that we need a much bigger change than has been offered before, and that it is worth building a political movement behind getting that change. Because, you know, at the, not, I, so now I am going to go even bigger than your question. Like, <laughs> there has never been a functioning democracy that didn't like it, modern democracy that didn't have a functioning labor movement. And we are in danger of not having a functioning labor movement anymore because the law keeps defeating the, the purpose of, of having a functioning labor movement. And so it is tied to democracy. So it should be urgent 
not just for the 10% of Americans who are in unions, but for 100% of Americans or whatever, I shouldn't say that, whatever percentage of Americans care about democracy should care about fixing um, the labor movement. Right. I would just well, add up. Well, go ahead, Jonah. Sorry to cut in, but just, just on the, the question of, you know, our workers, what's workers' relationship to the Democratic Party after something like this? I think like you're saying, Sharon, the threat is much less that workers will flip to Donald Trump or or the GOP, maybe to Donald Trump as sort of just a burn it all down option that possibly. But I think much more likely is that people just drop out, not yeah. just of politics, but of all collective association. The, the logic of our society is to say your collective options are very limited and you're probably not going to get much out of it. Your individual options, go become an entrepreneur, drive for Uber, buy some crypto, be a business in your individual self and have no collective relationships and no organizations. And this is, like you say, I mean, the, the heart of democracy is at stake here. Definitely the Democratic Party's hopes are are very limited if you have no sense of collective, you know, it's it's uh, it relies on association and organization and some sort of sense that there is a society beyond the walls of my home. So I, I just think it's eroding that sense. And what, what kills me about you know, blocking a rail strike is that it, those are some of the few options that the entire country has to see people act together and win, go through some experience of struggle and come out of it better than you came into it with. Any, any rational actor who is not just sort of overly politically committed like, like us, you know, we're too interested in this stuff, they will say, wow, the rail workers went through all that trouble, they paid all those dues, they had all those emotions, they went on the news and they did all this stuff. And for what? They're just embarrassed and, and have nothing. They don't even get a day off. I'd rather go take a side deal. And if everyone takes a side deal, there's no, there's no political community to talk about. There's no shared project. There's no, you know, it's like Thatcher said, there's no society if you lose that stuff. And I think you're totally right. We're in danger of losing it. Sometimes I think, are we just, is it already gone? And we're sort of just, you know, poking around the embers. I'm sorry, go ahead, Sharon. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I think that the interest in like the Starbucks and the Amazon organizing sort of shows that people really do respond to this and want yeah. to see workers win when they come together. So I think that's just a really great point of that missed opportunity and what um, what inspiration people could have taken from seeing these rail workers win. Um, and and so that is that's why I, I really am worried about as as great as it's been to see all this attention on Starbucks and Amazon. And I really want them to win, but I really worry what happens when they run into that wall where it's clear they have run into this wall of the law's defects and they can't deliver the win. I hope they will, but I worry about just what you're saying if that if that doesn't come to fruition. Right. I, so I'm I'm going to end on an optimistic note. And let me just say, I'm, I'm not sure what it says about the state of uh, of uh, labor or our democracy that I'm the optimist in this conversation, but I'm going to be because as you watch the organizing that's going on all over the country and particularly the organic way that Starbucks and Amazon and uh, Activision Blizzard and organizing in the public sector and healthcare and other places the way that organizing is going and and growing 
And the, and the fact that in many of those cases, in fact, most of those cases, unions are able to get to a contract largely because they're able to wield power against their employers because they have a larger collective that they're able to bring force to the table and change the position of the employers in a way that maybe these railroad workers were not able to do with their employers. Um, I'm still optimistic. I don't think that that time has passed. In fact, I think we're seeing a resurgence in worker organizing in the country. Now, I have the benefit of being early to that conclusion, because as we said, there's a lot of negotiating going on that's not necessarily leading anywhere, but in a lot of places it is leading somewhere. And there are unions that are getting contracts, they're getting first contracts. It's hard, particularly in the private sector, but they're succeeding in doing it. So I'm really motivated by that. I think that workers are turning to one another. They see more hope in working together with one another than relying on their employer. If there was any lesson coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, and certainly the COVID-19 recession and the Great Recession, that's the lesson is that your employer cannot be relied on to look out for your best interest. It's the person to your right and to your left and behind you and in front of you. Those are the people who are going to give you the, uh, the support and the encouragement and the power that you need in order to improve the quality of your life. So I'm going to be a relentless optimist because I'm, I'm dedicating my life to this effort. Um, and that's because I'm going to be optimistic, I'm going to take the opportunity to close the conversation right there. And I want to thank my guests, Jonah Furman and Sharon Block. You can read Jonah Furman in Labor Notes and on Twitter. He tweets it at Jonah Furman. I mean, to say better yet, subscribe to Labor Notes. You won't miss a word of what Jonah writes there. You can find Sharon on, on occasion on the On Labor blog. And she's also on Twitter at Block at shareblock just drop the on out of that and i want to thank everyone for watching this blogcast for more content on worker power worker organizing the effects of the economy on workers and much more read and subscribe at powerwork.us that's powerwork.us if you're interested in learning more about collective action join me for a blogcast panel discussion with Corey Doctorow, the co-author with Rebecca Giblin of the new book entitled Choke Point Capitalism on Monday, December 5th. We'll have the video of that panel discussion up hopefully on Tuesday, December 6th. Registration details for the live stream can be found again at poweratwork.us. You'll be able to watch, as I said, the full panel video Again, at PowerWork.us. Special thanks to our producers, Lexi Anderson and Dane Gambrell, and to our technical producer, Ani Dinesh. I'm Seth Harris, and we will see you right here again very soon.